Jim Cousins is going to come and save me uh, from myself. Jim is going to uh, do one of our three-minute, three to five-minute uh, stories. So uh, Jim and his wife Madeline are fairly new to Blue Ocean Faith, and uh, uh, let's welcome him to hear his story. Thank you, Tim. Believe it or not, I would like to thank Kim for the opportunity to share our story. Um, I know sometimes it conjures up you know, anxiety when people have to stand up in front of crowds, but I really do appreciate this opportunity because I think our story is very relatable to many of you. It may be from a little different perspective. We're gonna kind of approach this from a, a parent's perspective. But for some of you, and especially for the moms who are out there online, I think you will really relate to this. You will find it to be a, a common story. For the past three years or so, Madeline and I have been looking for a new faith community to join. I never thought at this stage in life <laughs> we would be doing this, much like Ken probably never thought at his stage of life he would be going through some of the things that he went through. But sometimes some of our life's journeys take us in directions that we never thought originally that we might be going. And actually this change in you know, our life's course started about eight years ago when our son Ryan, who lived in Chicago at that time, came out. And actually, he was outed on Facebook. And while social media has a lot of benefits, outing somebody is not one of those. And, you know, I can, I can truly say, I think Madeline and I can, can both truly say, did not see this coming. Um, some people say, well, yeah, I've known it all along since they were, you know, small or she was small, you know, that type of thing. But for us, I didn't see it coming. And to kind of have it right there in front of you on the computer screen on Facebook, it just, it, it blew me away. It really did. I mean, I, I'm sure for those parents who may have kids who have come out, you know, initially, there's a lot of raw emotions. And I admit they're, they're selfish, but we, we have these emotions. And, and for me, you know, yeah, there was some fear, you know, like, how's this all going to turn out? You know, I was concerned for Ryan's long-term safety. You know, oh, is everything going to be okay? Um, you know, and I admit, we shed a lot of tears. Um, we, we really did. Our, our paradigm of normalcy was really shaken in an, in an instant. And you, you could ask, well, you know, Jim, was, was your faith shaken? And I would say, well... Maybe the cage was rattled a bit, um, but no, faith wasn't shaken, it wasn't destroyed, but I knew we had a lot of soul searching ahead of us. So we were, we were at a decision point in our lives. This happened on a Wednesday. By Friday, we were on our way to Chicago for a visit. And the one thing that we really wanted to make sure was that our son understood that we loved him. And there was nothing that he could do, nothing he could be, that would change that. That was 
by far the most thing we wanted to be able to communicate with him. Secondly, we also knew that this interaction would be watched by others. We knew his siblings would be watching, and Ryan has an older brother who he's living with at the time, and a younger sister. And Ryan had a large community of friends, and we knew many of them. And we knew that they would be watching Jimbo and Mad Dog to kind of see how we were going to react. <laughs> and, you know, for some people, and, and we realized this was probably going to be the case, the only Bible they're going to ever read is through the lives of somebody that they're watching to see how they would handle this. There's that old adage, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And we didn't want to blow it. Well, I won't go into a lot of details, but we had a great discussion. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of tears, there were a lot of hugging. We wanted to hear his story. We didn't want to talk about it on the telephone. We wanted to be there in person and hear it and, and hear what he had to say and, and just really understand, Ryan, where are you coming from? You know, how long has this been going on? Help us, help us to understand that. You know, we, we really needed a, you know, kind of a, a new understanding, what, what's happening here. Um, I will never forget when we were together and Ryan said, you know, mom and dad, he said, I want what you guys have. You, I want that relationship. And as a father listening to that in 19, you know, 2010, there we go, eight years ago. <laughs> I got to get my date straight here. Wasn't that back that far. Um, that was tough. I did not know what that was going to look like. Um, but by the way, there is a happy ending to the story that Madeline will probably share next week when she gets to do this. <laughs> While we were going through all of this, we, for 35 years, had been part of a single faith community. The church that we had belonged to, we had been there pretty much since the beginning. This church was reformed in theology and evangelical in worldview. Yep, it was conservative. Yep, we thought we were probably going to have some problems. Yep, we did. <laughs> um, you know, I, there's lots of stories I could say and, and tell, but I'm not going to badmouth this church because there were a lot of really good people there. A lot of really good people. Unfortunately for the local leadership, they weren't quite as supportive as we found many of the other people to be. And when we looked on the broader horizon and looked at the leadership of the denomination, it was even more conservative. And so we had a real struggle. You know, do we stay or do we go? Um, you know, it, it was one of those things. I mean, we really wanted to make a, a difference in people's lives. And we knew that there were parents there who had gay kids, though it wasn't widely talked about. We would have loved to have had an opportunity to maybe lead a, you know, a Sunday school class or something where we could have some good conversation, but we realized mm, that's not going to be a possibility. So we really struggled with, you know, do we stay, do we go, do we try to find something that's more in line with our, with our beliefs? For me, and Madeline may talk about different things next week when she talks, but for me it came down to worship. 
Um, when we would sing songs, you know, Amazing Grace, or Your Grace is Sufficient for Me, and I knew there were conditions being put on that. I just, I couldn't take that. You know, when the, when the tears you shed in a service, you know, they should be of joy and thanksgiving and praise. My tears were frustrations and bitterness and anger. And so, couldn't stay. We just couldn't stay. So after those several years of frustration, and with sorry hearts, and with some reservations, we left. Now, we visited a lot of churches since that point in time, and we did a lot of research. There's a lot of information you can find out online, sometimes not so much so. Um, and we visited a lot of different churches. You know, at some, no one talked to us. It's like, man, it's, it's chilly in here. You know, we, we don't pick up any vibrations. We went to one place, and holy smokes, we were treated like the first-round draft choice. You know, you, you talk to the person, they take their arm around you, and they walk you right down front, and you sit down, and, and that's kind of scared us too. You know, didn't, didn't need, didn't want that. Another place you might go and you sit down and we kind of look at one another and say, you know, we're the youngest ones here. <laughs> um, so that wasn't really very good either. Um, but we, we did find some churches that we liked. And when we found a church that we liked, we always asked the senior pastor, we have a couple questions up here. And those questions were always this. If a gay person or a gay couple were to come to your church, would you allow them to be a member? And would you allow them to work in any capacity at, your church, at this church? And if they said no to either of those two questions, that was a deal breaker for us. So we, we moved on. You know, it was, a t it was tough to be an outsider for the first time in 35 years. My heart goes out to people who for a first time come and visit a church and struggle and nobody talks to them, and they, they walk away, and it's just not good. We, it, it was tough being in that, that role. It was, it was a process for us. It was exhausting, um, and, it, and it took some time. And we came to Blue Ocean. Actually, we went to Vineyard first. And when we first went to Vineyard, they were going through some turmoil. <laughs> and... You know, we kind of, Madeline and I kind of looked at one another and said, boy, I'm not sure this is the right time, you know, for, for us to, you know, put our, put our roots down at Vineyard. And so we didn't. So we went back to the Plymouth Canton community and, you know, tried a few more churches and, you know, had a few more doors shut and, you know, all of that. Eventually, we, we kept coming back here. Actually, we were here for the very first time you met in this, you know, in this room. And you know, we kept coming and going and coming and going, and I think now we're, we're more coming versus going, okay? I mean, this is, we know that this fits well with who we are and where we want to minister and the kind of impact that we want to have. Um, we read Ken's book initially, and that had a big influence on what we decided we wanted to do and where we wanted to go and that type of thing. Um, this past week in the Lenten Guide, there were some thoughts expressed that, that really hit home for me. They centered you know, around that first phrase in the prayer, God be in my head and in my understanding. And for me and for us, you know, it was all about a new understanding. 
And it took some time to, to really get there. We did a lot of reading, a lot of study. Obviously, we read Ken's stuff, read David Gushy, what an awesome you know, person. He, he writes really, really well. Um, Andrew Marin. I mean, there's just a number of other books that we read to really kind of help us in our, you know, in our new understanding. And I really liked when, when Ken wrote, um, you know, in that Lenten guide that he said, understanding starts with humility and knowing that we don't know something and desiring to know it better. And for us, we really did want to, we wanted to know it better. We wanted, what's God's heart, you know, in all this? Where do we see ourselves um, fitting in? And all I can say is that we prayed a lot, we talked to a lot of people, we read a lot, it was a process, it took some time, we didn't get there overnight, we had to humble ourselves, this wasn't about us, this was about our son, this is about other people, you know, we are to do two things and really two things only, love God, love people, and that's what we really needed to focus on. So I thank you really, believe it or not, I do thank you for an opportunity to share this story. Um, Madeline and I look forward to getting to know you better and to sharing some of our life's experiences with you. So thanks. Thank you so much, Jim. I, um, I just want to honor, honor you guys for what you did. I, I happen to know my mom is watching this morning. Hi, Mom. And my parents did the same thing when I came out, and that was so incredibly important to me. And I know that there are some of you here for whom your parents have not been that embracing. And I wanted to, to say something, just as, as Jim was talking, I was thinking, you know, I don't know if some of you, even who don't have gay kids, but maybe who are older, maybe your kids are older, who have left, I think of like the Caruths, and I think of Jim and Madeline, maybe even Brad and... Gretchen, you're a little younger. You know, Bob and Betsy. You know, like some of you who've been around, Diane and Paul, like, I don't know if you know how important it is to have people of about that age when you're younger. If your parents have rejected you, I see Joan back there. I mean, just to embrace you. Um, and even just like the little interactions that you're having with some of the younger gay congregants here, you may not know like just what a difference that that's making, that they've seen some people their parents' age who have been able to come and just embrace people and be willing to suffer on their behalf. So I just want to say thank you guys and know that you have like a really important place here. Man, how, like, how do you preach after a testimony like that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Skip it. I know, there was a piece of me that was like, hear the word of the Lord <laughs> and we're done. Oh, well, at least, okay, I was like, well, at least I'm opening a little bit with a story, kind of. So maybe that'll, that'll get us in here. You know, a few years ago, I, I studied in Jerusalem, and I had the opportunity, I was living on the top of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is actually a really big mountain with lots of neighborhoods. I was in this little, this little uh, stone room, and right outside my window was a loudspeaker. And every morning, just before dawn, which was a little before 5 a.m., the Muslim call to prayer would come on that. And because it was right outside my window, and it was so loud, because it was meant to reach like a bunch of neighborhoods on the mountain, um, and I was in that stone room. I mean, it just reverberated, reverberated for about 10 minutes. And so pretty quickly, I realized I was never going to sleep through that. So I adopted a routine where I got up at the same time every morning, really early, had my breakfast, went and had some Turkish coffee. And then I went down the hill to the building where we were studying together to just go and pray in the morning. And so that early morning call started to give some structure to my routine. 
And maybe this isn't true for you, but it was, it was true for me, I think, to some degree. That growing up in the Midwest, I associated the Muslim call to prayer with like Islamic extremism. But I pretty quickly learned that you know it's just part of the ritual of daily life for everyday people all over the world. And I actually grew to really love the sound of the singing, that there was sort of this haunting beauty to it. And I realized that a lot of the world knows and loves and responds to that sound. And at the different places that I've traveled, like when I was in East Africa, that was part of my day. Even when I lived over in Western China, the province that I was in was about 40% Muslim. Thankfully, I didn't have a loudspeaker just outside my window when I lived there. But there was a mosque that was a few blocks away, so I could hear it in the background, and it became part of the rhythm of my everyday life, five times a day, calling people to prayer. And then in a different context, I spent some time in a, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery for a little while. You know, so the nuns that lived there, I mean, think like, you know, red and yellow robes, shaved heads, they would get up at 6 a.m. or a little bit earlier every day to go outside and chant. You know, unless it was raining or something, then they'd go inside. But they would chant at set times throughout the day. And that's, that's not true of all Tibetans, but it's true of the monasteries, right? Of the people who are practicing uh, the monastic uh, forms of worship, the monks and the nuns. And so one of those times, I remember I was sitting up on the hillside with a friend. This was the nun who had let my friend and I like, crash on her floor in the monastery. So we had walked up into the side of this mountain. And I don't remember what it was that we were talking about particularly, but I remember at some point she turned to me and she said, I'm just curious, like, do you have chant or like fixed prayer in your tradition? And as it happened, I happened to have my iPod on me, because when I go hiking, I usually have that. And I pulled it out and I pulled out some Taze recordings. I don't know if you know Taze, but it's a form of Catholic sort of chant songs that are really beautiful, that originated in Taze, France. And my friend happened to have some travel speakers on her. So she pulled those out of her hiking backpack. We plugged it in. And I put on a couple of Taze songs. And that became one of my, my favorite memories of my life, actually. Just sitting out over this mountain and looking out over this beautiful landscape. Over you could see the beginnings of the Yellow River. And that music just ringing out. That hauntingly beautiful chanting music that's part of our tradition. And I felt like it was really a holy moment. And then I told this, this woman about fixed hour prayer which is what we're going to talk about today. And so that's a way of praying throughout the day using set prayers that are used by Christians throughout the world. So we've been in a series for Lent here called Prayer, the Shaping of Desire. And so in this series, what Ken and I are trying to do is just introduce some different forms of prayer, not because we feel like we need to adopt all of these and pray all these different ways all of the time, but just because we found it helpful in our own spiritual lives to have you know, a bunch of different prayer tools that we can pull from at different times of our lives. So some of you are probably familiar with fixed hour prayer, especially if you've known Ken for any length of time. Um, perhaps you grew up in a liturgical tradition, like if you come from an Episcopal background, you might know the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, for some of you, this might be entirely new. This was entirely new for me as an adult growing up in an evangelical setting. So while the Muslim tradition calls people to prayer five times a day at set times, the Christian tradition very often has, has taken more like a three to six times per day routine and plus, there's the middle-of-the-night prayers, um, if you're really into it. So the Christian tradition of praying at set intervals during the day finds its roots in Judaism. In the Psalms, we see, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. And then there's this little hint in Daniel, the prophet Daniel, it said, prayed three times each day. This is in Daniel 6. Daniel went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. So he prayed toward Jerusalem. 
Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Right, so by the time of Jesus, we know that Jewish people in the Roman-occupied Palestine, um, they prayed in conjunction with the ringing of the Roman bells. Right, so during uh, the Roman Empire times in the major cities, bells would ring at different intervals throughout the day in major cities that would mark the rhythm of people's lives. Right? So it was kind of like having a public clock. So first they'd ring at 6 a.m. And that was signaling that it was time for everybody to get up. And that was called the first hour, or prime. And then they rang again at 9 a.m. And that was called third hour, or terse. And then they'd ring at noon, the lunch break. And that's the sixth hour, or sext, S-E-X-T. And then people would do what they do in parts of Western Europe today, is they would take almost like a siesta between noon and three. And they'd go home, and they'd have lunch, and maybe they'd rest at the hottest part of the day. And then the bells would ring again at three, and that would call people back to work. And so that was called the ninth hour. And then at 6 p.m. they ring again, and that was the signal for people to go home for dinner. That was the end of the working day, and that was called Vespers, or the evening hour. So the Jewish people who were living in these Roman cities, they adapted that schedule for their fixed prayers. And so they would either pray where they were when the bells rang, or if they could, they would go to like a synagogue, or in Jerusalem, they would go to the temple to pray. And as far as we can tell, it seems like the Psalms were often used as part of these set prayers that they would pray together as a community. So while we don't really have any direct evidence that Jesus um, himself prayed this way, we do know that at least some of his disciples followed this schedule, which tells us that Jesus very well may have done so. And some of the most significant turning points in the New Testament happen during those hours of fixed hour prayer when those prayers would be taking place. So like on Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples with the tongues of flame, we're told that that happened at nine o'clock in the morning. So that's presumably when they were praying their third hour prayers. And then in the very next chapter of Acts, we're told that the very first miracle that happened following Jesus's ascension, so it was a miracle performed by Peter and John, that took place as they were walking up to the temple in Jerusalem for their afternoon prayers. It says it pretty explicitly in Acts 3.1. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So they were praying their ninth hour prayers. And then later when the apostle Peter has the famous vision of that, that sheet of clean and unclean foods that comes down, that changes his thinking about the Gentiles, he's in the middle of his noontime prayers. And so this one's a good story. So I'm, I'm going to tell a little bit of this one. So Peter, you know, one of the apostles, he was staying at the home of a man named Simon who was a tanner. And a tanner is exactly what it sounds like. It's a man who um, skins and prepares different animal skins. And in that time, it was pretty common for tradespeople like tanners to have their uh, businesses in their homes. So if you can imagine the home of a tanner in the midday, in the Near Eastern heat, probably didn't smell very good. And the scripture tells us that Peter was hungry. And so he's in this house that probably smelled a little bit funky. And so he goes upstairs to the roof to do his noontime prayers. So he's waiting on the food to be prepared and he can kind of get out into the outside. And it's when he goes up to the rooftop to pray that he has a vision. And in that vision, he sees this sheet that's filled with clean and unclean animals come down from heaven. So we know in the Jewish and the Islamic traditions, certain animals are forbidden for humans to eat, right? You eat kosher. In, in the Muslim tradition, you eat halal. 
And so Peter's hungry. And he's having this vision of all kinds of animals, forbidden and not forbidden. The, the language used is clean and unclean. And God commands Peter. He's like looking at it. He's hungry. He's maybe a little like, ah. God says, get up, kill, and eat. Get up, Peter, kill, and eat. But, you know, Peter's a good Jewish man. He follows the law of Moses. And I think some of those animals probably, you know, triggered like a disgust response in him. And this is compounded by the smells in the house and his hunger, right? He's hungry and he's seeing and smelling these animals that make him uncomfortable and he doesn't know what to do with what he's seeing. And he says, surely not, Lord. You know, sometimes even a revelation from God when it unfolds in our life, it makes us really uncomfortable. You know, it's a little bit like what Jim was sharing. I was thinking about the mama bears when I was thinking about this. You know, sometimes when God is unfolding something new in our lives, he's like, he can use prayer to bring us to points that are a little bit uncomfortable, but he like lets you know that he's still there with you to help bring you beyond some of your own objections. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, having spent a lot of time in a lot of other cultures, it's always a little bit interesting to me which animals are taboo to eat in different cultures, different parts of the world. So like a Tibetan would never eat a fish and a Tibetan would never eat a horse. Like eating a horse is considered really barbaric. While Mongolians, who are pretty close in culture to Tibetans, like they'll eat horse all the live long day. Yeah, I'm like, Satish, like they don't eat a lot of cows in India. Right? There are different cultures where things are eaten. They eat guinea pigs in South America. We would never eat a guinea pig. You know, Americans, we would definitely never eat cats or dogs or horses. I mean, for most of us, right, the very idea of eating a dog, it's just like, it's like so mean. That's so gross. I'm looking at Gretchen, who's a vet, like, oh no. <laughs> dogs are our friends. They have names. We rescue them when people are mistreating them. They sleep in our beds. They're part of our family. But I have to admit, like, I've eaten dog more than once when it was served to me in a culture where it was appropriate. I kind of liked it. <laughs> At least it's like, oh gosh, yeah, when in Rome. I know I thought, of some of you middle schoolers, if you're in here, like, don't tell your younger siblings that I've eaten dog. Like, that's going to totally freak them out. But I thought, you know, like, that, that can help bring us to that point of understanding the squeamishness. The squeamishness that you might feel when I say I've eaten dog and liked it, is probably the feeling that Peter had when he saw that sheet filled with what for him were taboo animals. Like, ah, no, dude, I can't eat that. And God's like, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter knows this is contrary to everything that he's learned as a devout Jewish man. Surely not, Lord, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And so God responds to him, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. You know, Peter eventually realizes he's not actually talking about animals, God is talking about people. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So Peter, he's still puzzled by this, so much so that God has to repeat the vision three times just for Peter to kind of get it, and even then he's not sure. So God's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to send three men. They're downstairs. They've already gotten here. Just go with them. They're waiting for you. You know, God's like, you see like God just sort of sighing at Peter, like, if you don't understand the vision, just follow me. Watch what I'm doing, Peter. I've sent people to you. Go find out what I'm doing among the Gentiles. Look for evidence of the Spirit at work. And so the next day, Peter does. He follows those men to their home in Caesarea to meet with Cornelius, a Gentile man. I've always wanted to have a, like, oh, I won't go 
there. Say, so if I ever had a son, I've Corny, Cornelius, wouldn't that be cute? Sorry, that's a whole different. <laughs> and God opens his eyes to the idea through this experience that the entire human family could be viewed with love and embrace. That opened a whole other can of worms, didn't it? But all of this to say, this story, it changed the course of human history. Right? This major revelation changed the course of history, and that happened through Peter's noontime prayers. And then there's some pretty good reason to believe that the Apostle Paul's conversion happened during his noontime prayers. If you read the account in Acts 22, like it's told a couple of different times in Acts, and in that one it's specific to say that it happened at noon. So all of this is to say that what we're calling praying the hours or praying the offices has a long and deep history in our tradition, and it's one that's been passed down through centuries and embraced by mystics and monastics and others through our tradition. So I wanted to show you. If you guys, have you guys ever heard of the divine hours? I know some of you who have been around have. Yeah, some of you old school people, yeah, yeah. This is the divine hours. There's actually three of them. And they're compiled by a woman named Phyllis Tickle. And Phyllis became a, a good friend and mentor to Ken. Um, Phyllis's book is the one that we were recommending reading. She's an older woman. She was a lovely, lovely soul. So what the hours is, is you just open it up and okay, I'm like, oh, okay, this one's for the Tuesday nearest to November 9th. And you pull it up and there's a morning office and then a midday office and an evening office. So there's three and then I think there's bedtime offices in the backs of each one. And so you call it up and then there's these different psalms, the call to prayer and then there's a psalm and the request for presence and a psalm and the greeting and the morning lesson and a gospel reading. And it's not, that, it's not that hard. It takes five to ten minutes. You always do the Gloria. Glory be to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, so it is now, so it shall ever be, world without end. Amen. I learned that by doing the offices, the Lord's Prayer. There's always a prayer appointed for the week, and then there's the concluding prayer of the church. And it is surprising that when you start to pray these, you start to know some of these prayers by heart. And you can start to rattle them off a little bit. So these, there's... Three of them. This one is the autumn and wintertime. There's a spring and then a summertime. I'll be honest, I couldn't find my springtime one. So I brought the wintertime one with me. Now, maybe because of the way I'm wired, I haven't always found praying the hours to be very helpful. So I tend to use them a little more selectively. I've prayed them sometimes when I've been going through a little, little dip of depression, when I'm finding it a little bit harder to pray, or when I've been craving some structure in my life. So like, I took these, um, all three of the books actually with me to China and I prayed them pretty faithfully for probably a year and a half. And I found that really helpful in a time when my life lacked some structure. And I think it's okay for me to share this, Ken. I remember Ken has shared how he first discovered praying the hours. It was after your dad died, right? And he was going through some depression and so he had a hard time praying and he felt like, well, what can I do? So he went to a bookstore and he just, you were just perusing, right? And you found the divine hours. And they started to really work for him. And he fell in love with them. So that's when he contacted Phyllis, the author, and that began their long friendship. So Phyllis prayed the hours pretty faithfully for most of her adult life using the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Episcopal book. And I, feel, I find that one almost impossible to figure out. If you're not Episcopalian, it's kind of like, I don't know how you do this. So Phyllis talked, I remember one time she was describing how she got caught. Like she, she was a public speaker, but she also had some parts of her that were pretty private. And I think she prayed the hours privately for decades. 
And she would work as, she worked as a dean, so she was in academia and then later in publishing. And I think it was at the publishing house, some of her more astute colleagues caught on to what she was doing because she would sneak away every day at nine, noon, and three. And they were like, I think she praised the offices. And so when she came in one day, they were like, you know, we're pretty sure this is what you do. Would you like to update these so they're a little bit easier to use for, you know, like everyday people, people like me who can't figure out the Book of Common Prayer. So that's what these are. And the purpose of praying the hours isn't just for structure, although it's lovely for that, but there's really a spirituality to developing the rhythms and healthy habits in our lives, and I think it helps serve that purpose well too. It's a way for us to connect with believers past and present. Let me unpack that. It's a way for us to connect with believers, both past and present. So the hours have been described, I like this description, as a, a cascading waterfall of prayer. So the idea is like, you know, like people in mountain time zone pray the noontime prayers. And then in the next time zone, in what would that be, central, they start to pray the noontime prayers. And then when it comes, and then in the eastern time zone. And so the noon prayers, I'm going backwards, aren't I? That's why Betsy was doing that too. I'm not good with details. I just saw Betsy being like, oh, dude, you're messing that up. Going the other way. In my world, the world spins backwards. (laughs) But it's, it's almost like, you know, like a, an Olympic torch just being passed along around the world. The morning prayers, the midday, the evening prayers, right? And so it's that idea of a cascading waterfall of prayer that's going around the globe in waves. And it helps you remember the global church that we're connected to, that we're praying the exact same prayers that people say in South Africa or England or Egypt or India are also praying. Now, I had kind of a strange-for-me experience a few times when I prayed the offices. So with every office, you always pray the Lord's Prayer as part of it. And I remember that as I prayed it, I had this sense that like, I was hearing other voices pray with me. And it's kind of hard to explain, because it wasn't like a bunch of voices in unison. I just, I'd probably had closed my eyes or something. And it was more this sense of like I had entered a room where other people were coming and going to say it, and they were saying it in different languages. And it was almost this like cacophony of people just saying the Lord's Prayer, like I was joining in with this larger community of people who were meeting. And I think that was real. You know, I think prayer is a little bit like entering a dimension that goes beyond our three to four dimensions that we can experience or feel. I mean, is it string theorists? What are we up to now? 21, 22 dimensions? Something like, there's something, there are things that we don't understand. And so this was a helpful analogy for me. Maybe it will be for you, if not, throw it away. Um, But if you're a gamer, if we've got any gamers in here, if you like playing online video games, like where you log in and you're meeting other people online, maybe you're playing with people from Korea and Brazil and all of these different places, for me, that's a little bit what prayer is like. Right? It's like you're logging in, like you're kind of dialing in, like intentionally in, and you're also sort of entering this space where other people are also entering. We call it maybe the communion of the saints. And it's not like we're not always part of that, but it's like this conscious awareness of that space. It helps connect us to the saints, maybe even past, present, the people around the globe. So my friend Sue Brokaw, my dear friend Sue, she has prayed the hours much more faithfully than I had. I actually had no idea that you had prayed them as long as you had, for almost 20 years. And so Ken asked her to write out her experience of using them. So I'm going to read you that. This is Sue and her words. She said, I started reading the Divine Hours in my mid-twenties, which is long ago, 
uh, long enough ago where I'm not sure what drew me to the practice initially. Perhaps I liked the idea of checking in with God in a systematic way with the verses from the Bible already selected so I didn't have to play Bible roulette to figure out what God might want to say to me that day. Right? We know that like you pick up the Bible and you're like, Lord, I, I'd like you to speak to me. Oh my gosh, the Canaanite massacre. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what do I do with this? Ah. <laughs> she said, praying the offices is pretty easy. It doesn't take very long and the readings selected tend, not to, or tend to be the more accessible ones from the Bible. Praise the Lord. She said, my consistency with this prayer practice has varied over the years. And as with most practices of any kind, routine helps. I've gone from only reading the morning office each day to being able to incorporate the midday and the vespers into my lunch hour and then after work, respectively, for a few years, Monday through Friday, when I had an office job. I even had a phase of praying the ones reserved for the middle of the night in the months after Caleb died, and I consistently woke up anxious at 4 a.m. I thought this might be worth saying because... A oh, few of you have had some significant losses this year. Like maybe you've lost a spouse. We actually had two people just in the last two weeks lose a parent. Um, and I know that after that happens, sometimes the body just wakes up in the middle of the night. Or maybe you have insomnia. There's another, it's a separate book. It's called The Night Offices. And they give you the before bed, is it midnight and 3 a.m.? I think there's like three different offices that are through the middle of the night that some monasteries practice on a regular basis. Um, but if that might be helpful for you, if you're waking up in a time and you feel just a little bit lonely and would like a little bit of comfort, maybe try out the night offices. So Sue goes on. She said, I distinctly remember a time in my 30s where I couldn't point to what it was that I was gaining from this practice, and I stopped. But yesterday, just after Ken asked if I wanted to reflect on why I liked the Divine Hours, I happened to be reading a book that said this about prayer. If you don't pray, you'll inevitably become depressed or inflated or bounce back and forth between the two. And only prayer can provide for you that fine line, spiritual, psychological, and emotional, between the depression and inflation. And Sue so said, I knew I had something to say in response to Ken about this time of not praying the divine hours, and this seemed to put into words what happened when I no longer had the consistency of the prayer practice. I felt like I bounced back between feeling like I had everything under control all by myself, feeling inflated, and then feeling quite lost and depressed when I figured out that I didn't. And I remember the steadying effect praying the morning office had once I returned to it. I'm not sure why this simple five to ten minute practice of reading through select scriptures and saying the Lord's Prayer works so forcefully to keep me more or less spiritually on track, but it does. And the same book mentioned above, which was uh, The Holy Longing, explains the effect of daily common prayer this way. The rituals that sustain our daily lives, they don't work through novelty, but through rhythm. I really like that. The rituals that sustain our daily lives don't work through novelty, but through rhythm. And the rhythm of reading the divine hours in the morning for years has indeed had a sustaining effect on me. I'm now more familiar with various lines from Psalms that come to mind at moments when I need them for comfort or motivation or a reminder of God's love. And although the Bible roulette method of hearing from God is questionable, I have indeed had many occasions where God speaks to me through the oddly specific words in the seemingly random selected daily readings of the offices. And seeing these psalms and readings again and again throughout the different seasons that they're associated with has had the effect of recalling those times that God spoke, has spoken and created a pattern of his faithfulness that I can look back on. I thought, gosh, after reading that, that makes me want to take up the hours again. Rachel and I talked about doing it for Lent, but 
we're so unstructured we haven't quite gotten there yet but we'd like to try it for spring i've really enjoyed like the times of my life when i've used it regularly it really is um, something beautiful you start to rattle off some of the prayers by memory and they become part of you i will say this if you hate the idea of praying the hours don't do it like some people jive on it and for other people it just it just feels oppressive to them too constrained and i feel like the hours should never make you feel guilty prayer shouldn't make you feel guilty but if you do think you find it helpful here i just wanted to give you a couple of different ways to maybe get started on experimenting with whether or not they might help you and the first piece of advice i would say is try and leverage your current habits so i don't know about you but rachel and i get up extra early in the morning so that we have time to like drink coffee and read the paper and so that might be a natural time for us to add in the morning offices so we're already doing something in our normal habit you could do it before bed or I, I used to pray for a brief amount of time. I remember when I had a, like a cubicle job, I would pray it during lunchtime. I would just do the midday office in my, um, at my desk. And that worked really nicely. So do something that you're already doing. Second of it, think of it eating it like a snack. Right? Think of it like eating a snack during the day. Right? That You don't need to spend 20 minutes eating a snack. I mean, you can. But it's like, don't put a lot of pressure on yourself. You know, you can skip parts of the hours. I find that in the evening, I often will skip the hymn section because I feel like I'd rather stop and meaningfully pray for four or five minutes than to keep skipping it because I'm like, oh, it'll take too long. You know what I mean? Just, just take the little bit that's working for you. And the third thing I would say is just give it some time because all habits and practices take some time to evaluate whether or not it's useful for you. So for the first couple of months, you might feel like, why am I doing this? And then by the third or fourth month, you might be like, Oh, these are kind of becoming part of me. I'm finding I look forward to it. You know, so if that works for you, maybe give it a shot. Maybe it'll work during different parts of your life. I think there's a reason that several different faith traditions have this sort of prayer throughout the day. Muslims, Buddhists, Jews, Christians. And that's that humans over the centuries have found that praying like this over time does actually shape our hearts and our desires. Right? And it starts to become part of us. It becomes part of the larger rhythm of our life. And it helps us feel, and for me, I think we have such an individualistic culture. It helps me feel connected to the wider church community to remember that I'm part of a global faith and not just one church or not just me. So with that, let's do a little bit of meditation. We like to end our services with a minute of either silence or meditation, a little guided meditation. And what I'd like to do is, actually, I'm just going to read um, this is called the uh, request for presence from today's divine hours and it's a psalm psalm 142 5 let me read it and then let me just say a little something the psalm is i cry out to you O lord i say you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living and i just want to suggest in the silence that maybe we hold on to that either thinking more deeply about that idea of god as our refuge or God is your portion, or what that means in the land of the living. And you can even argue with God, like, man, I feel like you actually haven't been my refuge or my portion. And think of God however God manifests, however you think of God or conceive of God. So I'll read it one more time, and then we'll just have a little silence. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. can 
leave some space for just some dialogue. Maybe, maybe God will want to speak something into this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Trinitarian divine spirit of love that holds all together. We thank you that you are our refuge, that the spirit of divine love is a safe place, an embracing space, a place where there is grace and love for all. We thank you that you're our portion, that you provide for us and comfort us, that we can feel you near to us in times of hardship and of trouble and of sorrow as well as joy. And Jesus, we thank you for your comfort with us here in the land of the living. And we thank you for the communion of saints, both past and present. And we bless the work of the Spirit in the church. May you bring us together to shout the message of love in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.